Hello everybody. Welcome to this re-recording of my holiday lecture, which I gave on live stream the other night. I want to dedicate this lecture to my mother, Mari Kelly, with whom I will be reunited in a couple of weeks time once I have stayed outside Queensland for the requisite period of quarantine. I want to begin this holiday lecture with families, who we are all over the world in our different and unique and sometimes similar iterations because of our families and who we are despite our families. I think that as we journey through life, we build the families we create in response to the family relationships we inherit. In the very first scene of The Winter's Tale, we're introduced to the world of Sicilia, governed by King Leontes, as well as the far-off world of Bohemia, governed by King Polixenes. We learn that the two men, as children, had lived as brothers, as adoptive brothers. In an exchange between Bohemia's Archidamus and Sicilia's Camillo, we learn about this relationship. Camillo says, Cecilia cannot show himself overkind to Bohemia. They were trained together in their childhoods and there rooted betwixt them then such an affection which cannot choose but branch now. The heavens continue their loves. Archidamus replies, I think there is not in the world either malice or matter to alter it. Archidamus's words malice and matter ring out from this passage because they bear a strong sense of dramatic irony because there will indeed very soon be both matter and malice to alter the relationship between two old friends who call themselves brothers. The alteration in the two men's bond will bring about confusion and a winter of decay and seeming death. Family, as introduced by Archidamus and Camillo, spells cohesion. Leontes and his wife Hermione have had a son, 10-year-old Mamilius, and the king's family, with its imminent new baby to be born, cements the cohesion of the whole country. But as the play gathers momentum, we will see this family disintegrate, its roots literally torn from the earth. To this point, it's very intentional, I think, that Shakespeare has Camillo use the word rooted. Our families form our roots. They are the source of both our strength and our vulnerability. It's the very rootedness of those bonds that Camilla refers to, the, the means by which we first and perhaps most firmly strike roots in the world, by which we come to learn about ourselves in terms of our first identity and our first self-knowledge. And it's those whom we call family, the people at our roots, 
who know or perhaps who don't know but they still do it how to push our buttons who can so easily prompt us to question and to doubt ourselves and the different versions of ourselves that we create in the course of our lifetimes. The people we grew up with know our roots. They were there at our roots. And when roots become twisted or even cut off at the source, we ourselves as human beings can become contorted, starved, cut off from our belief in who we are. When I say these words, I think of my own roots in Australia, the creek where, as children, we rowed our little wooden boat, the windy winters in which we would spend our holidays foraging for old glass bottles from the decommissioned soft drink factory next door, and they came in colours of dusty blue and green and pink, taking refuge in the hollow of a tree against the harsh sun to eat our Christmas treats being granted special access by my brothers to enter their museum, a water tank cut through the middle in which they had placed for exhibition the bottles they found as well as the skeletons of ancient horses and cows head and the bead mats that one of my brothers would make. Playing mothers with my sister, dressing our cats Annie and Whiskers in ridiculous baby bonnets. These were our childhood days, the means by which my family members came to know ourselves. Life can never erase or fully replace who we first were in this world. One of my brothers is dead now and my mother, a devout Catholic, looks forward to being reunited with him across that bourne from which, as Hamlet reminds us, no traveller returns. It's family, with its bonds and its breakages, with which Shakespeare scaffolds so many of his plays. He shows his characters contemplating who they are and who they thought they were, who they can be, who they're not permitted to be. The Winter's Tale has been showing on our Cal Shakes platform and I hope you got the chance to watch it in this holiday time when so many of us are gathered, willingly or not, into family clusters. It's a time perhaps when it's easy to forget that it just might be better to have a problematic family than no family at all. Families and their effect on children loom large in the winter's tale. I've mentioned the start of this Shakespeare's wondrous second-last soul-authored play, and I quoted the interchange between Archidamus and Camillo. Now let's look a little further into the action, at the triangle that emerges on stage between husband, wife, and boyhood friend or adopted brother. Having had two minor characters introduce the central ones, which Shakespeare does in almost all of his plays, Shakespeare then brings the two great kings and Hermione, Leontes' wife, on stage. Leontes, intriguingly, never mentions his own father, 
or mother or any siblings at all. Unlike Hermione, who once Leontes has accused her and put her on trial for her honesty and fidelity, reminds herself of who she is in terms of her family of origin. In Hermione's time of abandonment and public shaming, it's her family of origin, not the one she's made with Leontes, to which she turns for comfort. It's this family relationship that reminds her that she is an emperor's daughter, not her husband's worthless harlot. She says, the emperor of Russia was my father. Oh, that he were alive and here beholding his daughter's trial, that he did but see the flatness of my misery, yet with eyes of pity, not revenge. In other words, we're shown a Hermione whose shame and isolation, the fact that she is utterly misunderstood by her husband, compels her to lean back into the roots of those from whom she came. Unlike Leontes, who has no family other than the relationships he now questions. Leontes has a friend he once adopted as a brother, who he feels, imagines, has betrayed him by stealing behind his back with his wife. He has his wife, who in his imagination has betrayed him with his best friend, his brother. And he has a son, as well as a baby, who he thinks of as betrayals of his own regency, flesh and blood. Family for Leontes in this play, almost from the very start, is only a source of undoing, unknowing, which is why there are so many of what my friend James Keller once told me he thought of as unwords in this play, like unintelligent, unspeakable, unsphere, unfledged. And here's the thing about undoing. We can't see what's going on in other people's heads. We don't know what other people's stories are, even if we think we know them. This is why we so often misstep or are confounded by other people's responses because the stories in their minds may be so profoundly different from the stories we think we know about them. This happens even in our families, the people at our origin. Families of origin often forbid us to make and live out new stories, becoming new selves. Because no matter who we become, what we achieve, what we think we've left behind, they see us as who we were back then. So here's Leontes cut off from those who ever knew him in his family of origin, cut off from his own roots, and now 
slicing himself away from those who are his family. From the story of love that both Polixenes and Hermione recount early in the play. The visiting king is asked to talk about their shared boyhood and he does and about their ultimate progression into matrimony. Leontes hears these stories told by Polixenes and accented by Hermione. But these stories aren't true for him anymore in the state of mind that now overwhelms him. Leontes has his own stories and he's asked by his wife to contribute his part to the stories that are being told. But listen to what he recalls. Leontes says, why that, back before his marriage, that was when three crabbed months had soured themselves to death. Ere I could make thee open thy dear hand and clap thyself, my love, then didst thou utter, I am yours forever. Listen to those words, crabbed, soured, death. These are the emotions that Leontes recalls when telling his part of the old story. And the word forever, this is now a betrayal for Leontes. Forever is a deceit. Once he thinks the well has been poisoned, he can't drink the water anymore. This happens all over the world. Stories are the way we human beings know ourselves and communicate ourselves to others. Stories are the way that we tell our histories and they can be told and untold, broken apart like the unwords I just mentioned. But with the breaking apart of a king's world, the effect is all the more devastating. Leontes' confusion and rage about his family wrecks an entire kingdom. Leontes is, yes, the head of his own family, but he's also the head of a nation. He says what is true and not true, what is just and not just. And he is the head of the whole kingdom. As I just mentioned, the control of knowledge is ultimately up to him. So if his head is messed up, so is the kingdom itself. Think for a moment about justice systems, which purport to grant an objective standard for behavior, misbehavior, right doing, wrongdoing, punishment, and compensation. But look at the failure of the justice system in the winter's tale. Having placed his wife on trial, Leontes calls in the forces of justice from Delphos to get an, an objective read on the situation. And the justice system decrees that his wife is innocent, that it is he, Leontes, 
and not she, Hermione, who is wrong. Listen to the decree. Hermione is chaste, Polixenes blameless, Camillo a true subject, Leontes a jealous tyrant, his innocent babe truly begotten, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. So what does a king do when he hears this judgment? Well, and this may be familiar to us in our own world 400 years later. He says that the judgment is not true. The king simply decrees that the justice system and not he himself has got things wrong. Therefore, Leontes says, there is no truth in the judgment. There is no truth in the oracle. Leontes' journey will be to learn to embrace justice, to realize that true justice does not live inside his own head and that he can't throw a judgment away just because he doesn't like it. He must live through his pain, learning a new form of justice that pierces the fine robes and furred gowns of his entitlement. Now, let's think about this for a moment. It's only when he's lost his wife and his son and when he's thrown his baby daughter, literally not to the wolves, but to the bears, certainly to seeming death, that Leontes comes to see a truth that will not go away because he says it's not true. He comes to realize that he's lost all of his family and therefore all of his legacy for the continuity of the kingdom. And this, not the judgment, not Paulina's words, it is a heretic that lights the fire, not she who burns in it. It's this rather that stops him. The fact that there is no one to carry on the legacy of his kingship after his death. He is alone and he feels within himself his own diminutive mortality. He then says, and only then, that he will repent, that tears, in his words, shall be my recreation. So even when he's lost all of his legacy, Leontes is allowed not to lose all of his hope. He sees that he will be recreated, that he can live again someday, that he can even marry again someday, that he can create a new legacy from death and destruction, that he, an all-powerful king who's been stripped of his leaves, can, through the process of redemption, be newborn. He can marry again and think about the fact that in this time, back when medical knowledge was so much less evolved than it is today, 
Shakespeare was enacting a truth on his stage, a biological truth and a social one, that a man, after 16 years, can marry and father a new child, shedding tears and, as Leontes acknowledges, being recreated and recreating. But that a woman of the early 17th century, after 16 years, most likely can never give birth again. So, believing his wife dead, Leontes will get a chance to be new again. If he had no hope of recreation and of recreating, would he indeed shed those tears? This is the question. Tears are water, tears are sorrow, and yet being water, they are also growth. So tears for Leontes can still spell hope as well as sorrow. But Shakespeare does something really fantastic here. He puts Leontes' wife on hold, not on ice, but on hold. Leontes is promised by Hermione's maid, Paulina, that he can, as I've mentioned, marry again. But at the end of the play, we see his recreation, born in the very figure of his wife, returned from a long hiatus. Leontes thinks this is a statue as he is told that it is, and he critiques the art of the statue maker, saying Hermione was nothing so wrinkled as this is. And there's an irony here, because Shakespeare is suggesting some important things about being human and about the nature of justice. As a king, Leontes is still, it turns out, just a human being. He won't get to dance off into the bedroom with a fecund new bride, making a new child. He will return chastened with the wife he once abused so monstrously and he will get the chance to treat her well, to trust and cherish her finally. But the legacy of the kingdom will not be in his control in terms of creating a new child to carry on his name. It will now go to another character who is re-found after all these years. His infant daughter Perdita returned from Bohemia. The kingdom will in the future be shared by this returned child and that of Polixenes whom he wronged all those years ago. So here's the magic of what Shakespeare suggests in this ingenious situation. No ruling of justice and certainly no apology can ever adequately address what Leontes has done to destroy his family and his world. No apology can ever bring his son Mamilius back to life. 
No apology can ever make Cecilia what it was before. Leontes doesn't get to control his legacy by birthing a new child. But he does get to have his wife and his daughter back again. He does get to do and be better than he was. And here, perhaps, is the most amazing miracle of this play that is underscored by miracles. Because in order for him to do better, it also takes the capacity of those he has hurt to forgive him. Hermione, his wronged wife, can find it in her heart to forgive him. This is the real miracle of the play. Here is the way forward. Here is the magic of forgiveness as well as repentance. The Winter's Tale employs the forces of magic and the supernatural in telling its tale of redemption, but it suggests deeply and profoundly that the true magic of forgiveness and of redemption lies within ourselves, within our human hearts. There are the families we inherit, the families we may marry into, the families we may destroy, but even roots that are torn, which would seem to be damaged beyond repair, even destroyed, can be magically recreated through the strength of human compassion, through the request for forgiveness that is heard and the granting of forgiveness. Forgiveness, unlike systemic forms of justice, doesn't decree a punishment that can appropriately fit the crime. Forgiveness, as in Cordelia's words in King Lear, written six years before, it knows no such boundaries, it knows no cause, no cause, and ultimately it may be the most powerful way to move on. As Shakespeare builds his play around these issues, it's no wonder that he calls to mind not just external justice systems that won't work, but also ethical systems as well. Whether or not we believe in a God today, these words from Peter and from Ezekiel shine out of the statue that Shakespeare places near the very end of his play, in this play that is derived from green story Pandosto, written 20 years prior to it, and from the stories of the Bible. Imagine Leontes as you saw him on our stage this summer, looking at a statue brought in to commemorate his wife, and then suddenly it moves. This is his wife. Leontes, in that moment, believing his wife long dead, sees a miracle and hence the echoes of the Bible as you come to him, a living stone 
rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then also the words from Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to these words, I, you, I, you. Renewal, forgiveness comes through the capacity for I to meet you, you to forgive me and vice versa. So these powerful images from the Bible that enshroud the living statue scene at the end of a winter's tale suggest that justice via the hand of the law is as nothing compared to the justice that lives in us as a very human miracle. Hermione, of course, is never actually dead. She's simply dead to Leontes, but she can come to life when he is able and ready to move on. We can all be dead to each other until we find the means to ask for forgiveness and perhaps to get the privilege to grant it. So I've talked about the justice that lives in the hand of the law and the true justice that only human compassion can bring. The justice wrought by law can never be enough. It can never undo being violated. It can never undo harm. But given time, and an examination of our human hearts, we ourselves can make amends. And it's no wonder that time is created as an actual character in Winter's Tale, because it's not just 16 years that pass in order for Leontes to repent truly and to be truly forgiven. It takes humanity, something that can never be truly embodied in the mechanical workings of a clock. Yes, time does live in an objective sense. This is the hour at which I do such and such. But time can also be transcendent. It felt like a minute. It felt like forever. Time affords contemplation. Time allows things and more importantly, selves to change. Time can allow us to think, to repent, and to make relationships new again. Winter's Tale doesn't suggest that these relationships will be the same. And it doesn't suggest that, it, that its hand can literally turn things back. We can't erase experience or the effects of time but time can allow for the greatest of all human miracles, empathy, acceptance, forgiveness of others and ourselves. So how does Shakespeare feel about time 
himself. Well, in many of his sonnets, like Sonnet 63, he refers to time as a cheat or a thief. Against my love shall be as I am now, with time's injurious hand crushed and all worn, when hours have drained his blood and filled his brow with lines and wrinkles, when his youthful morn hath travelled on to age's steepy night, and all those beauties whereof now he's king are vanishing or vanished out of sight, stealing away the treasure of his spring. For such a time do I now fortify against confounding age's cruel knife, that he shall never cut from memory my sweet love's beauty, though my lover's life, his beauty shall in these black lines be seen, and they shall live, and he in them still green. So in this sonnet, Shakespeare suggests that as with a human heart, with the miracle of renewal, the defeat of time being suggested through the capacity of this heart, it's also the capacity of the poet's pen to defeat the decay wrought by time. Queen Elizabeth, who reigned over England, for two-thirds of Shakespeare's career, was herself determined to conquer time through art. In those days, it was quite simple, visually at least. Elizabeth waged war against time via her use of propaganda. And propaganda in that period was the means by which uh, you were able to defeat time. It was derived from the propagation of the faith. It was meant in this sense to guide people's right judgment, just as Paulina uses it in The Winter's Tale by bringing out the statue and seemingly bringing it back to life as a means of guiding Leontes right judgment. And I want to mention just a little bit about propaganda portraiture in this time. The Queen would, and the King after her, the King, by the way, was the regent while this play was written, they were very, very rarely seen in public. They would go on a royal progress once every couple of years, which was very finely staged. But they were known to their people principally by portraiture. Well, differently today, propaganda is now not the reserve of the rich and powerful. It's in the hands of every teenager. The ability to curate your image to present a persona to the world this ability is empowering, but it's also quite perilous, as it's easy to develop an addiction to presenting a positive image of yourself, far from reality, to mask your vulnerability, 
your physical flaws, to mask your insecurity, even from yourself. The internet, with its digital editing capacities, can function as your own personal feel-good mirror. Elizabeth I was deeply engaged in this activity over 400 years ago, just not via the internet, of course. Because she could afford it, and not because she simply wanted to look attractive, but because it enabled her to keep a hold on power. Elizabeth didn't like posing for portraits and probably only posed for about five in her lifetime. But many paintings were made from these few representations of her. We know that she wore a lot of makeup um, that because of its lead content was eating into her skin so that her actual skin was pitted and decaying. Her image in portraiture was idealised to present the appearance of an immortal and all-powerful sovereign. Even when she was frail, wrinkled, bald and losing her mental acuity. The mask of youth was a very important device in this time. It was a term given to the portraits of Queen Elizabeth I, which adopted a standardised image of ageless beauty. Elizabeth made a state proclamation which prohibited any images of herself to be distributed to the public which gave, in her words, great offence, which did not comply, in other words, with the mask of youth. It was common practice for courtiers to commission miniatures of the mask of youth, as Elizabeth often expected her courtiers and nobles to promote her image, and it became fashionable for them to wear these miniatures as symbols of their devotion and loyalty to the monarch. They were often made into pendants and cameos. So it's intriguing that Elizabeth's life was spent living behind a mask, the white paint, the carefully created images that could serve such an important literal and metaphorical function in her hold on power. Well, thinking about propaganda, about the usefulness of masks, perhaps the, perhaps the message we might draw from this is that a mask is ultimately a mask, even for a regent, and that the truly majestical thing, the true majesty that lies with every human being who has access to it, if we are brave enough, is to face ourselves behind the mask, to look at ourselves with all our imperfections and accepting these in ourselves, to accept them in others. This is a truth that is at the heart of Eric's work in our theatre and it's also the truth by which my good friend Kurt Toftland lives in his work in Shakespeare Behind Bars. Kurt, a Shakespeare teacher 
in prisons embraces himself and what he acknowledges to be his human frailties. And he makes this the basis for his work with people who've been marked by the justice system as imperfect, so imperfect in fact, that they have been sequestered away from the rest of humanity. But what Kurt says and what he believes is that no one is beyond understanding and therefore no one is beyond redemption. And he uses Shakespeare's plays with the people, the incarcerated and returned citizens, to grant access via Shakespeare's metaphor to the deepest and most masked or hidden, but the most profound parts of their wounded selves. These people may have years and years in which they are, uh, they spend their time in prisons, contemplating themselves if they wish. But most of us human beings run away from our sins, masking our imperfections by doing things that present alternate and more palatable images of ourselves. On the macro level, say the Sackler family, for instance, might give billions to art galleries that can present masks for their own sense of generosity, what they want to present for themselves in the world. And these are also, of course, the images, um, the portraits, the paintings that align gallery walls in the world's most important galleries. These images may enchant ordinary people, people who, by the grace of God or circumstance, have avoided the destruction that the Sacklers Oxycontin has wrought. On the micro level, most of us find a way to try to mask ourselves, to walk away from our messes as well. Because we can, because we feel we have to perhaps. So I, I suppose that in this talk about families, winter's tale, time and finally propaganda, what I want to suggest is that the miracle of theatre mirrors the miracle within our own hearts. It gives us an image of our own human paradox, ourselves in our heights and our depths of human possibility. And theatre makes us sit there, even for an hour or two, before we can turn away. In normal life, perhaps we can't, or we won't live within this paradox. It's too painful, too confusing, too confronting. But to be able to live within it, its grace, its power, its awesomeness, its awfulness, this is the miracle that Shakespeare and theatre itself opens us to, to unmask for a moment an hour, two hours, three, 
to come away, as my friend Julian Roberts says, seeing the world and ourselves just a little bit differently. We're all villains and victims. We're all Leontes, Polixenes, Hermione, Perdita, Paulina, Antigonus. And we're all, in the end, the little infant, unspoiled and undamaged for just a few moments before life takes over and we take root and we find and make our families, our people. Thank you for listening, everybody. And I so look forward to seeing you back at Calshakes in the new year, first for our production of Romeo e Juliet, and then later in the year, our production of Marcus Gardley's brilliant adaptation of King Lear. For now, happy holidays. Wish me luck for my travels to see my mother and family in Australia and take care of yourselves and see you soon.